Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon and welcome to NJSBA's Blog Talk Radio program, Conversations on New Jersey Education, uh, a show dedicated to creating a conversation among those of us in the education community and beyond on the important education issues of the day, a conversation that brings state leaders to you and educational leaders to you. I hope that you all feel free to join us in this conversation. My name is Ray Penny. I'll be your host this afternoon. Today, we will not only be taking your calls, but we will also, as usual, have our chat room open. I think this gives you uh, two ways in which you can participate in the show. Uh, Jennifer will be taking the calls this morning. Jen, can you please explain the process? Good afternoon. Welcome to NJSBA Blog Talk Radio. My name is Jen, and I'll be here to help you if you have a question or comment. There are two ways to communicate with us here today. You can call us or use the chat room feature. To call in, dial 1-347-989-8904. When you are ready to make a comment or ask a question, press 1, and that will indicate on my switchboard that you are ready to ask a question. I'll get your name and your question or topic. Also, if you are on the phone line, I will ask you to turn down the volume on your computer and only listen on the phone since there will be a delay and it's confusing. If you are listening on your computer, we have the chat room feature that you can log on to. To log on to the chat room, you will need to register with Blog Talk Radio. It's very easy. You simply have to provide a username and password. We will be moderating the chat room and will pass some of the comments or questions on to our speaker. Thank you. Thanks, Jen. Uh, once an individual is elected or appointed to the local school board or charter school, they are obligated to follow the code of ethics, which guides their decisions on behavior as a board member. They are, they are also to be aware of any conflicts of interest that they may have. They are also part of a governing body and a group, so sometimes indiv- individual actions can affect the group. Sometimes what may seem like an innocent action or relationship can cause a question of uh, can cause some of us to uh, question a board member's actions. We will be discussing the conflicts of interest, micromanagement, the role of the individual board member versus the whole, as well as the code of ethics, which is intertwined in all of this. Here this afternoon to discuss what board members should be aware of and some of the issues that arise is Isabel Machado, a school board attorney who represents several school districts. Uh, welcome, Isabel. Thank you, Ray. Uh, Isabel, before we get started, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, sure. I've been practicing uh, law since uh, 1998 and uh, pretty much exclusively in the area of school law. Several years ago, I was lucky enough to open up my own firm, Machado Law Group, and we have uh, six attorneys, including myself, and we represent um, over a dozen school districts. And I'm happy to speak to you about this topic. Um, As I had mentioned before to you, uh, we get questions on school member ethics and what they should do, board members should do, should not do, almost on a daily basis. Okay. Um, well, people who uh, run for the school board or are appointed often, uh, what happens if you have a relative cause, uh, that works in the district? Uh, we'll start with you have a relative who works in mm-hmm. the district. Maybe it's your spouse or, or a child. Uh, what should be some of the issues that they should be concerned with? Sure, sure. Um, and this is an issue that um, – 
it comes up all the time. I think more so now. I'm seeing it more than I did years ago. Um, and I think what we need to be concerned with, and what I always advise my clients, is to really recognize the chain of command issues. So let's take the example that you said you have a, a board member who has a spouse in the district perhaps working as a teacher. Well, what the school ethics decisions, and there has been a recent change, which we'll talk about as well, mm-hmm. but um, what the ethics decisions really look to is what is in that spouse's chain of command. So, for example, if you have a teacher, as you mentioned, working in the school district, that board member, um, the teacher spouse uh, working in the school district, that board member who has that spouse really needs to recognize who that teacher reports to. But not only a direct supervision, but it goes all the way up the line to the superintendent. So any personnel decision involving anybody in that chain of command, be it um, you know the direct supervisor, director, an assistant principal, principal, all the way up to you know uh, assistant superintendent and then the superintendent, all of those decisions that involve those individuals um, you know, terms and conditions of employment, really, a board member should not be participating in. Um, the recent change that I referenced before is really the Martinez uh, case that came out, I believe it was last June, July of 2012, mm-hmm. um, that talked about superintendent searches and what a board member's involvement should be in superintendent searches. Um, That decision was actually very timely because as a result of a lot of the education reform and the superintendent salary caps, there are many districts in New Jersey going through superintendent searches. So when this case came down, it really kind of caused a stir and and clarified a lot of what was going on. Prior to the case, and I think we kind of need to start with where we were before Martinez came along and then go into where we are now. Uh, Prior to that, when we were talking about superintendent searches, uh, board members who had relatives in the district, and we're talking about immediate relatives, not necessarily in-laws, but immediate relatives in the district, uh, really could participate in the superintendent search and ultimately appoint a superintendent, provided that there was no internal candidate. So that if there wasn't anybody in the district that the relative was working with, then the board member was permitted to participate in that process. That's really no longer the case, and I kind of call it like we shifted to this chain of command model. So just like a um, board member cannot participate in any of the personnel decisions I discussed going up the chain of command, that kind of goes over to the superintendent search as well. So if there is a superintendent search, really essentially anybody in the any relative in the district that fits that definition of, of immediate relative under the School Ethics Act, that board member is really precluded from from participating in the, the search process and ultimately appointing a superintendent. Yeah, uh, we had, uh, as we were talking, we had the School Ethics Commission there, and they, they felt that it kind of drew a line in the sand because, as you were stating, it was a little bit – it depended it, it, on mm-hmm. in the search. Uh, but you were talking about the chain of command. So if someone is a, a board member, then they cannot – and they have a relative in the district, just to clarify, they cannot participate in the superintendent evaluation? Correct. Okay. Uh, what um, if uh, a, a, uh, they have and a relative? You know what? If I, I'm sorry, not to interrupt, but just to back up, even not only even the, uh, the superintendent evaluation, but anything that impacts um, any personnel decision between the superintendent. Let's say if we're talking about a teacher as the relative, any any decision in between that that chain of command as well. 
Okay, and what happens if a board member is uh, uh, has a relative, a direct relative, uh, or themselves is a, a, a say a teacher in another in another district? Is there anything that they should uh, be sitting out in, at that point? I assume it affects negotiations. Right. That would be more of a negotiations issue, and we can talk about that a little bit. Generally speaking, um, if it is an in-district relative, meaning a teaching staff member who's part of the association in-district, that board member is conflicted out of everything. And I usually like separating it out between the discussions and the actual voting on the tentative agreement. So in-district relative, um, in the association, any discussion, any vote on any kind of collective bargaining agreement for that unit, the board member would be conflicted out. If it is, um, if the teaching staff member is, let's say, a teacher in another district, part of the same statewide um, association, then that board member is definitely conflicted out of participating in the committee, any of the negotiations, any of the discussions. However, if it's an out-of-district um, teacher, then that the board member can vote on the final tentative memorandum of agreement. Uh, and obviously, if you have a uh a spouse, uh, spouse working in district and they're up for a promotion. Can, can they get a promotion, or uh, or can a, a relative be hired? Right, and we need to draw the distinction and the definitions because it just tends to confuse people, but the definitions between what we call the nepotism law that came out a few years ago mm-hmm. is actually different than the definition of a relative for um, the School Ethics Act. So the School Ethics Act, when we talk about immediate relative, it does not essentially include in-laws. When we talk about the nepotism policies, the, the definition of relatives there and the individuals who are co- uh, covered are much more expansive. So they include they include in-laws, they include grandchildren, they include uncles, aunts, things of that sort. Um, So they really need to be looked at on a case-by-case basis. But under the nepotism law, and all of the districts were required to not only abide by the law, but adopt a policy that, um, you know, mirrored the law, that uh, if you are a sitting board member, um, then you cannot hire relatives. However, there was a grandfather provision that said that if um, the, the the individuals were already there, then they were grandfathered in. All right, let's uh, switch the topics a, a little bit. Uh, still kind of in the personnel situation, but uh, it gets into the role of the superintendent and the role of the board in the hiring of uh, staff members. Uh, if a superintendent, say, uh, and I've heard, I've seen this before, where a superintendent doesn't, there's a current, say, a football coach, uh, and He's not recommended for rehiring or another name is placed forward. Can a board uh, act to hire, keep the same person if the name is not put before them by the superintendent? Right. The answer is no. And this is a great question, especially given where we are being May 3rd, uh, because we know all of our districts in New Jersey are trying to get all their notices of non-renewal out by May 15th. Uh, but the board's authority with respect to this issue, the answer is no. Um, they can only... Um, the board can only or board members can only vote to approve personnel that is recommended by the superintendent at this juncture. So let's take your example. If you have a um, 
an employee who is not being recommended uh, you know, for a renewal, the board is not required to take any action. It's almost the reverse. They take action on the appointments that the superintendent puts forth. So if there's an individual that's not on that reappointment list, the, the board has no legal authority to override that super, the superintendent's decision to do the non-renewal. However, the exception to that would be that um, that employee then has uh, the opportunity to request a statement of reasons from the administration, which would then be provided. Upon receiving the statement of reasons, they have the right to um, request a hearing before the Board of Education, and that has to be granted within 30 days of the, the request. At that point in time, if and that's typically what we refer to as a Donaldson hearing, mm-hmm. at that point in time, the individual and maybe a representative of the association can approach the board and essentially make their case for why they should be reinstated. Um, Only at that point does the board have the authority to reinstate if they feel, for whatever reason, that the superintendent's uh, recommendation, or not even recommendation, but decision not to renew was inappropriate for whatever reason. They do then, at the end of this Donaldson hearing, have the right to reappoint the individual to the position. All right. uh, Just one more thing on the Donaldson hearing. Someone would... uh someone from the board would have to make a motion to appoint that person or reappoint that person. They don't have, if they don't take any action, then the superintendent's action stands. That would be correct. And this whole process is driven by the employee as well. So a board member cannot say to the superintendent, I want to have a Donaldson hearing. Um, it's got to be at the request of the employee, and it's got to be followed pretty much the letter of the law in terms of the time frames and things of that sort. But it has to, I think the important thing to remember is that a board member can't do it unilaterally. It has to be driven by the, by the employee or the employee's you know, association or representative. Right. Um, uh, saying in the vein of uh, personnel decisions, uh, many board members are parents too, and mm-hmm. they have students, the kids in the school. Um, say I'm a, uh, we have a teacher who's being recommended for tenure. My child had that teacher. I didn't think the teacher was very good, at, and I had some incidents. Or and I know other parents had incidents. Can I bring my personal views or opinion? I guess that would be uh, that. Uh, into the discussion when uh, this person's uh, when we're when the board's making a decision on this person. Yes, uh, generally speaking, yes. I mean that discussion would have to take place, and I just want to kind of make sure um, that we phrase this in the contents of an executive session. Yes, um, that should be a yeah, discussion, that taken. discussion where the employee has been rights. But assuming that has all happened, then there's a recommendation for tenure on the superintendent, that the superintendent has recommended the teacher for um, for tenure and for reappointment, um, then yes, the, the, the answer to that is um, that, the employee, that the board member and the board members can bring their outside experiences to the table and have that discussion and share their feelings their circumstances um, with respect to what happened with the rest of the board. Now, if there was an outside parent complaint, there's also a provision in the School Ethics Act that says that if you, you know, if you're getting these complaints from outside sources, that that complaint needs to be um, given to the superintendent as well for consideration so that the board members cannot take it upon themselves to do anything with that. But in the contents of a tenure discussion or a reappointment discussion, the board members are able to bring the views from what they believe the community, their experiences and things 
things into um, that executive session discussion. The only exception I would say is that there has been some case law that where um, an in, you know a board member or or potential board member at the time that he or she was campaigning really ran on the platform that they were going to like get rid of somebody, um, and it, that 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 was almost where it come where it rises to the level of like a personal vendetta. There's been some suggestion in some case law that that may be a problem, so that that individual may be conflicted. Of, you know, from voting on on that particular personnel action. But that's the only exception, and that's really pretty egregious. It really has to cross over the line to have reached that level of, um, you know, I'm going to get this person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, my understanding in the, uh, is that when a board member is making a decision on uh uh, say tenure, uh, that is the one opportunity they, they will have to look at the personnel files, the evaluations act at least uh, of the of the staff member. Correct. I always advise um, board members and and the administration as well that the you know with respect to employee confidentiality and their privacy rights that the only time that the board members are permitted to look at the personnel file and the evaluations is when they have something in front of them. Um, in terms of some kind of personnel action that they, they, they need to review the file in order to make an educated decision. So absent them having something that they need to decide, they should not be going through uh, personnel files. We're speaking with Isabel Machado, a school board attorney. Uh, if you'd like to ask her a question, you can dial 1-347-989-8904 and just press 1 and that will let Jen know that you have a question. Uh, and we'll have her answer it. Um, Let's switch gears a little bit. Um, as I said before, a lot of board members are parents, uh, so you know they're in and you know they want to be part of the school system as a parent, not necessarily as a board member. But uh, can they walk into any building? Do they have any more rights uh, to uh, be on the premises of a school building? Uh, no, generally no. Board members are really considered, um, unless they're acting in their official capacity in terms of going to a board meeting that's held in you know, a, a school building or even a committee meeting or a facilities committee meeting where a couple of them accompanied by perhaps the superintendent or looking at the facilities or something like that, they are, they are absolutely considered visitors and they need to abide by the school visitors policy. So that means that board members who are coming in should make appointments if that's what's required of them. They should sign in, sign out. A lot of the sign-in sheets um, state forth a reason or who you're visiting. They need to uh, abide by that as well, do that. And I think one of the important things, and it, it may not necessarily be a, a requirement, but I would certainly um, advise, and I think board members would be well advised, to make sure that the, when they do enter the school building, even for purposes of, um, you know, official business, or even if they're going to visit with, um, you know, a child's teacher, their child's teacher, or anything like that, they need to follow the policy, but also be accompanied, because, um, you know, most school visitor policies require that, and I think it is um, in today's day and age, a very good thing for a board member and to recognize to be cautious about that so that I would not typically recommend that even if you do the sign-in and sign-out procedures that a board member be allowed to walk a school building unaccompanied by an administrator, principal, assistant principal, who, you know, a supervisor of some mm -hmm. sort. I think it's, a, it's a, a protection not only 
a safety concern, but also a protection for the board member, him or herself. You know, so they need to follow the policy, whatever it is, the appointments, the signing in, the naming of the uh, the wearing of the name tags or the badge, whatever mm-hmm. it is required. Uh, board members are well advised to follow the policy. Uh, but still, if there's a parent, if there's a concert and their kids in the the, the fourth grade uh, band, they they're just like any other parent that can go to the concert and all that stuff. And it's a little different scenario at that point, right? Oh yes, absolutely. Um, so if it's a school function, then you know, again, they're not for any kind of school function like that. Um, they're treated as any other parent would be. Okay. Um, well, I was if I'm a board member and I have a special education child. And I, I kind of have some issues with the placement, and, may, and how far can I go in protesting that? Uh, because that might involve some uh, resources for my child and even funds. Um, so uh, how far can I go? Right, and that that's a great question, and that's something that we struggle with all the time in terms of um, board members because, um, you know, parents – who have special needs children really aren't any different than parents who have general education students. So just like, um, you know, gen parents who have their general education students can vote on textbooks that will ultimately impact their students. So can parents of special ed students. Um, the one difference is with the special needs students, there are additional safeguards in the federal law that allows parents to bring what's either a mediation or due process petition, which is essentially legal action, um, challenging the appropriateness of the services or the program that the district is offering to their students. And certainly by being a board member, you don't lose that right. However, board members need to be careful when they do file these types of petitions and mediations. And it's a very fact-sensitive issue. But if if we were to talk about guidelines in terms of what's okay and not okay and when we cross the line, um, the concern we, we would have or a district would have would be that by filing some kind of litigation that you would then, you know, trigger um, the disqualification of actually sitting on the board. So it's not even necessarily a conflict issue that can be waived on a case-by-case basis, but at what point does that become a disqualifying, you know, um, claim against the board? And generally what the cases talk about, is it substantial? Is it a material interest? Mm -hmm. So, Generally speaking, if a, a board member, let's say, files um, so, uh, for mediation, disputing a portion of the program, um, because it's a mediation process, that's generally okay. Uh, when you cross over, and that actually becomes what's called a due process petition, where it's actually a legal action that would be um, held before an administrative law judge who's making a decision, that's getting a little bit closer to the line. It's still generally okay, provided that the um, parent is not seeking, or the board member parent, I should say, is not seeking a, a monetary um portion of it. So uh, if it's reimbursement for some kind of service that was unilaterally provided, if if it's uh, damages, uh, if it is, um, you know, something other than just educational services, which a school district is obligated to provide anyway, I think once you start attaching the dollar signs to it, then it becomes um, arguably a claim against a school district that could potentially disqualify a board member. 
So oftentimes what we see is when we have board members who have special needs children and they're having issues, you know, um, with their with their child and they, they, they're very careful about this and a lot of times they'll even seek, you know, independent advice on whether or not where that line gets drawn. And a lot of times, honestly, what we see if it is a couple that's married is you'll see the claim come out um, or the claim being made by one parent, the parent who's not on the Board of Education. And that's generally okay, too. But I, th- I think we need to be aware of, um, and again, very fact-sensitive, uh, the cases really draw very fine lines. But once we start talking about dollar signs and a claim against the district, I think that's when we cross over the line and board members could potentially be held to have uh, you know, a substantial and material interest in, again, a claim against the, the school district, which would then potentially disqualify them from sitting on the board. Um, staying into this, and I know the special ed is a, that's a difficult situation a lot of times. Uh, one of the code of ethics is I will support and protect school personnel. Um, what happens if, you know, if I personally do not believe the staff member is really worthy of this public support? What should I do in that episode? Right. I don't, I don't interpret and I don't believe, and I think the case law is um, consistent with my interpretation of this. I think the case law doesn't cite to that provision to say that board members have to go out there and say, you know, this particular teacher is great or all our teachers are great or anything like that. Uh, I think what's intended and and what's in the case law as to that provision being interpretive is that – you don't affirmatively go out and speak negatively about the staff in public. Well, first of all, that's a problem anyway because anytime you speak about a staff member, it really needs to be an executive session with a couple exceptions right. and with that rice notice. Um, so that that could potentially implicate that as a violation as, as well. But the provision itself and the case law that interprets that provision essentially is just really precluding uh, board members from going out there and speaking negatively. There's no affirmative obligation for a board member to go out there and, and say positive things. I think it's, it's the opposite. I think it just prevents them from going out there in public um, saying negative things about the district's employees. Uh, we have a call. Uh, Carl left a message and uh, has a question. Uh, and this actually is, uh, and I've seen this on Facebook too. If a member of the board sends out an email, and I'm going to put in maybe posts on their Facebook page to the community to ask them to come to a meeting, and then ask questions on an issue, is that okay? But and they send it that obviously as a board member. Um, Right. Um, I mean, and we can go I, in a lot of different directions on this. Yeah, uh, I was going to say it really depends on what the question what the issue is. If it's a personnel issue, that's problematic. If it's a a matter that should be an executive session and isn't really open for discussion to the public, that would be, you know, a breach of confidentiality or or things of that sort. But if it's generally, if it's just a general announcement, we're meeting on Tuesday night at 7 o'clock, we really want you to come out because we want to hear what you think. You know, let's say on something that would be um, public information or something that would be open to a public discussion. Uh, let's say you have a district that's thinking about implementing school uniforms. In that instance, I don't find anything wrong with with that because, you know, that's what it's intended to do is be a public forum or a public hearing on whether or not school uniforms are appropriate for this particular district or something like a grading system. 
um, you know, to invite the public to come to talk about some kind of grading system, anything like that, I think it was perfectly appropriate. If it's a personnel matter, if it's, um, you know, an issue that's very controversial, if you're in terms of doing that post, you're revealing confidential information, that's when it becomes problematic. So if, there, if you're just saying you want the public to participate in your meeting, that's one thing. Uh, if you're well, obviously personnel is another issue, but if you're probably taking the side and telling them to, to stand up to the board, you're getting into different territory a little bit. Correct. So it really yeah. depends on what the the context of the the issue is. Isabel, the, the social media and technology uh, and all the sunshine law, that's a whole meeting in and of itself. Correct. <laughs> uh, a program, I should say, uh, which I've done. Um, uh, another question was passed on from uh, – and I, I, I'll read it, but um, if a teacher passes a grievance or a complaint to a board member outside of an executive committee, committee meeting, is the passing of that illegal? And this gets into a lot of different territories. But uh, So a teacher comes to a board member, I guess, personally. Mm-hmm. Is that a, an issue? Has a grievance or a complaint against, um, I guess, maybe the, the administration? Right. Well, we're we're talking about what the the – the uh, board members' obligations are. So, I mean, the teacher may have breached something in terms of the chain of command there, too, but that's kind of another topic. But So I'll look at it just from the board members' perspective and what the board members should do. I mean, any kind of complaint, whether it be a parent complaint, an employee complaint, anything like that, uh, needs to be referred immediately to the administration and the superintendent. Um, So in terms of, and I don't know if the caller um, meant, like, a formal written grievance because the grievance procedure is usually set forth in the collective bargaining agreement anyway. Um, so that's really what needs to be followed. Yeah, and that's I'm not upon. sure either. So, but if it's just, let's say, if it's a formal grievance, that needs to be passed along to the superintendent. If it's a complaint as well, that needs to be passed over to the superintendent and really needs to go up the chain of command. Uh, we cannot allow... Um, you know, uh, everything below the board to be bypassed. So any kind of issue, um, complaint really needs to start right from where it initiated. Um, so let's take a parent complaint uh, against a particular teacher. Then that needs to start with that teacher, then the building principal, then go up to central office administration. And then ultimately, if there's no decision rendered, then it would go to the board. Not unlike a grievance. A grievance also, most collective bargaining agreements would provide that it starts, you know, at the building level and then work its way up through various levels of a, of of appeal. So I don't really think it makes a difference whether it's a formal grievance, a complaint, or what the issue is. I think uh, generally all of that stuff really does need to be referred over to the administration for consideration and for to make sure that the policies are followed and the process is followed and, you know, it gets done correctly. Yes, I, I would uh, agree uh, with this. And actually, the board member should not really comment on uh, any staff member with these issues. Uh but the caller now is coming on the air, so obviously maybe I explained the uh the, the question wrong. Uh <laughs> so uh caller you're on. Okay. Uh my question moreover moreover was the complaint has already been lodged, it has already been to uh, to the superintendent and the the copy of the complaint was not provided to the board members. So the the teacher himself provided that copy to a board member, not to all the board members. 
Just one board member. Just one board member. Okay. And uh, and the board member accepted that copy, and uh, now is the board member in violation for accepting a copy of the complaint which has already been filed with the superintendent, or is the teacher doing something illegal, or the board member is doing something illegal? Good. Uh, Isabel, you're the attorney. Yeah, I would say that, no, that the board member, by simply accepting a copy of the complaint, provided, though, I'm going to add the caveat, that he or she took the copy of the complaint and gave it to the superintendent. So the receipt of information you can't really control, especially nowadays. Um, So as long as it wasn't sought, the board member didn't go to the teacher and say, can you give me a copy of your grievance? If it was a situation where they ran into each other, maybe not even run into each other, the teacher sought the board member out, gave him or her a copy of the complaint, um, the board member didn't do anything wrong because you can't necessarily control that. It's what the board member does with the information after he or she gets it. So as long as he then passed that along and it followed the appropriate course of action, there's no ethical violation there, as I see it, based on how you described it. Okay. Uh, In that particular case, it appears the superintendent already had a copy of the complaint. Uh, he showed it to the board members and took it back from the members. So the board members really had no chance to read that complaint later on at their own uh, at their own leisure, rather than giving, being given ten minutes to read that complaint. Mm-hmm. So well, but if the and I'm assuming the grievance was at the board level already. Oh yes. Or uh-huh. at the superintendent level. At the board level. It was at the board level. Um, Well, the grievance to be um, heard then at the board level, you should have the information in front of you. I'm not sure this is really an ethical question, um, but it is not unusual, I will tell you, and I don't see anything wrong with, um, and it happens quite often, where information regarding personnel is distributed to the board, but then the copies are collected back. And that's only to protect the board in terms of making sure that the, the, the information doesn't get out to third parties, and then there's a claim that there was um, an impro- inappropriate release of confidential personnel information. So that's not unusual. I don't see that as being problematic. Just I have a follow-up question. To, it sounded like, though, it was more of an FYI giving you a was the board being asked to make a decision, or was the board just being given the I, – I guess I got to yeah, Isabel. Yeah, it's more first. or less the information because – All right, is... so I think, Isabel, mm-hmm. you weren't being asked to make a decision, so uh, you might be asked to be, be be making a decision later on, but I think it sounds like an FYI to me. Is that – Isabel, am I reading that yeah, right? Yeah, I, I agree, which is why I said, you know, it's not unusual, especially in an FYI, to give the board the information and then – um, take it back if it's confidential personnel information. Okay. Thanks, caller. And if you have another question, that just... case that, uh, if the teacher gave the board member a copy later on, uh, is that still illegal or legal? Well, again, it's the receipt of the information that you can't always you can't always respond to right away. As long as the board member made the superintendent aware of that, I don't think that's an ethical violation for the board member. It's her personnel or his or her personnel record too. Right. So it's, if it, I guess if it was someone else's, that's a different situation. All right, I Correct. have to move on. Thanks for the calls, though. Thank you. Okay. Yes. Um, let's move on to the uh, off personnel a little bit into uh, board members dealing with each other sometimes. Um, 
say a board member uh, disagrees with an action of the board uh, and feels very strongly about it, uh, but they're supposed to be support board decisions once the decision is made. Uh, can they protest? Can they go public on their disagreement uh, to the newspaper, to on um, Facebook, or whatever? Right. Well, I think what what um, we need to advise board members of, uh, even right from the very beginning, once they um, you know get seated to a board of education, is that it is a majority decision board, meaning that the majority decision uh, really rules, um, and there is. You know, there's opportunity for dissension. I mean, that's what this is, is a democratic, you know, process in terms of that. So you would hope that in the board meetings, um, when the particular item is is being discussed, that there's a back and forth. And that's really what we want to see happen in this type of process, and that's how it's set up. But ultimately, there has to be a decision. Um, and nine board members will not always see uh, eye to eye, and many times you'll have five, four, um, you know, in terms of split board decisions and, and things of that sort. Um, so board members need to recognize that that's the forum for it, that um, the board meeting is where we, um, you know, we have those discussions and the board meeting is where they have those in public. And there's nothing wrong with having a, a dissension. Even after the decision is made, I think at a public board meeting, it's fine to um, – you know, to to express dissension or disagreement with the decision and set forth whatever reasons. I think once you leave that forum, though, it becomes problematic where um, a question arises as to whether or not the board members undermining, at that point, the process. So I think that's a difficult line to draw. I think we need to ed educate our board members that uh, where they need to um, – you know, where there's going to be dissension, that it should really be occurring at at a board meeting. Um, that being said, I mean, there's certainly plenty of case law out there that talks about board members not losing their own individual right to speak on public items. Um, as long as if they do that, uh, that it's not a representation of the board and they're, they're doing that, they're not, one, they're not violating any kind of confidences or release of any kind of confidential information as they're advocating for um, their position and if they're doing anything in writing or making any kind of representations that they're doing so in their individual capacity and not as a board member um, or identifying themselves as a board so, member. And, so that and might be problematic. So they should actually, and I think most of them do now that I see, you know, when I see the statements either on a posting or in the paper, they say I'm speaking as an individual board member, not speaking for the whole board, which they should do at any time they, I guess, publicize an opinion unless they've been designated as a spokesperson for the board. Correct, correct. And that's correct. probably all us school board attorneys telling them to be careful about it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we're talking with uh, Isabel Machado. If you have a question, dial one three four seven nine eight nine eight nine zero four and press 1, and I'll put you on the air. Uh, Jen will get your question first. Um, you know, you talked about someone maybe running for the board and saying, I want to get rid of, uh, say, the school principal or whatever. But uh, my understanding a candidate can say whatever they want for the board, as long as, long as I should, I'll clarify that they're not an incumbent, um, uh, right? I mean, because they're not bound by this code of ethics. Uh, absolutely, and I, I and I, I love the question because it's one of those things when you look at the strict interpretation of the law, it absolutely um, it does not apply to candidates. I mean, other than you know it being um, it potentially talking about something that would disqualify them from 
being on the board. But with respect to things they say or do or things like that, they are not bound. Candidates are not bound by the the School Ethics Act. Uh, when it talks about uh, in all of its definitions, it's limited to board members. Um, so yes, the answer to that is yes. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it because I think it becomes a little bit problematic. Um, sort of what I was talking about before that there is case law out there that if this particular individual is running on the platform, let's say, to get rid of a particular employee in the district, let's say the superintendent or whatever, and that's the that's the platform that this person is running on, I, I think there is an argument and there's some case law, although maybe dated, that talks about, you know, this individual having a personal vendetta and then potentially being excluded from any personnel decision regarding that employee anyway. Um, secondly, I you know, I think it's a hard, given the fact that, and I'll take a step back, um, the the real, uh, you know, meat to the School Ethics Act is the fact that school board members are not to administer the schools, that they're there to see that they're well mm-hmm. run, which is why the administration, or the superintendent, I should say, um, a lot of what the school board does can only be done at the recommendation of the superintendent. Um, so to run on that type of platform or to make those types of promises, I think, although legally okay to do, I guess subject to some kind of um, slander or defamation outside of this context, legally okay under the School Ethics Act, I think they're really hard promises to keep um, as well. So the answer is yes, but I don't really recommend it, nor would I understand why somebody would do it. Um, well, I've had board members complain that they're running against someone and they're saying things that they know or mm-hmm. they can't do. Um, and which I told them, well, you bring that up a candidate tonight. Um, <laughs> uh, another question on the – it's kind of an election question, but it, it's also in the school ethics. We only have a, not too many uh, time for a couple more questions. How, can how Or how can a board member endorse another board member for an election or a candidate uh, or a re-election? Uh, they can do endorse anyone they want, right? Yes, correct. They can endorse uh, as long as they're clear and kind of what we were talking about before, not much different from um, when they're taking a position on something not as a spokesman of the board, is uh, it's okay to endorse. You just want to make sure that um, you're not misrepresenting yourself as a spokesman for the board. So you want to make sure that disclaimer language, if there's anything being mailed out or sent out, um, that the individual is not being, uh, that it's clear to anybody reading or receiving or hearing the information that that board member is um, not a spokesman for the Board of Education because boards of education cannot I- endorse any particular candidate. Um, and actually, uh, uh, I guess they can even make donations to anyone's campaign. That's correct. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, let's touch on the area that uh, you and I were discussing a little bit, but it, it's a very important one, and that's confidentiality. Mm-hmm. Um, once you, I guess, uh, you know, once whatever happens in closed session stays in closed session. That's right. And and this is um a very difficult area for board members one to understand and then it's also difficult to kind of enforce and um and and kind of keep a lid on as well. Uh, A lot of information in an executive session that, um, and we all know executive session is governed by the Open Public Meetings Act, which says that there are certain items that that can be discussed outside of the the public's purview. And those items include like attorney, uh, client, um, you know, uh, privileged items, litigation items, personnel items, all those types of things. And when you look at the items that are excluded, they're, they're really meant 
to um, protect the process, meaning that if this information was discussed outside of pub the public session, that it would compromise whatever ultimately is trying to do, uh, whatever the board is trying to do. So that's why it's so important. But all of these items, board members are um, – privy really to a lot of confidential information and uh information is disseminated and they they have it and a lot of times even inadvertently it you know they they will disclose certain information that could impact not, not only be a violation of the school ethics act but also impact what the district is attempting to do or this you know the board is attempting to do and um you know i it, Although sometimes it happens intentionally, I think a lot of times it happens unintentionally where, you know, the board member uh, will be in a restaurant with his or her spouse. They're having a discussion, which in and of itself is a violation um, to have executive session information shared with, with a family member, uh, and somebody will overhear it. And and that always becomes very problematic. So I especially for our new board members when when they sit, they don't get the training right away. Mm -hmm. um, you know the orientation training that New Jersey school boards does. So I always like to emphasize this confidentiality piece and make sure that everybody's on the same page and they know that what's discussed um, in executive really not, does need to stay in there. Not only because it's a, a serious violation of the School Ethics Act, but also because it can compromise what's being done. All right. We only have like 40 seconds left. Uh, Isabel, I'd like to thank you. I have one last question. If a board member in any district has a question or they're not sure if they're in a conflict of interest or what in the violation of the Code of Ethics, they should probably consult their board attorney. Consult board attorney, the ethics commission, or even the New Jersey School Boards Association. And if there's any gray area, the best bet is to request an advisory opinion from the School Ethics Commission. Okay. Uh, Isabel, thank you for joining me on the on the program. Thank you. Okay. Uh, and uh, thank you for listening. And our next program will be uh, May 14th, and uh, we'll be talking to David Kurt, author of the book, Improbable Scholars. And thank you, and have a good afternoon.